Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. It's great to have you tuned in for the program. There are some who have a view of Christians as people who have to follow a whole lot of rules in the Bible. Conservative do this and don't do that kind of people. The Bible is not so much a to-do list, but a roadmap for where the landmines of life might be found. It's quite specific about getting rid of sexual immorality and it's highlighted by Paul in the New Testament when he addresses the Colossian church. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in his study of Colossians with clear directives for us about God's view of sexual immorality and our response to it. Praise God. It was around the um, 1930s, 1940s that a young man who was obviously very talented was offered a major record deal and television time contract with the NBC Corporation. And this ordinarily would be good news, except with the, the birth of television coming in, obviously the late 40s, um, early 1950s, that his mother, who was a godly woman, was, was just in consternation about what this would do to her son's spiritual health. And she didn't know what to do. Her name was Beverly. And um, her young son, George, good-looking, great voice, one of those baritone voices that people pay money to listen to. And, and he had the world before him and he was quite cocky. It's, it's a dangerous thing to be incredibly talented and not have the character to handle it. And she didn't know what to do and as with any teenage son heading into 20s, some, somehow lectures just don't seem to work anymore. <laughs> so she gave that away and one day she came across a poem written by someone in her church. And she left the poem which struck her. She left it on the piano. She knew that George would come down and do his voice training and so on and there it was on the piano and George sat there and picked up this handwritten poem and as he read it, he began to play on the piano and instantly a tune came to this song and as he read it he wept and as he sang this song, this song became his song. He refused the record deal. He declined the NBC TV offer, all because of this poem. This is the poem that George Beverly Shea read. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Than to be a king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. 
He's fairer than lilies of the rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. Let's pray. Father, the sentiment that changed George Beverly Shea, that he would rather have Jesus than anything, is Lord, our prayer today. So I pray for our hearts, to be hearts that say, Jesus, have all of me. Have every part of me unreservedly. Let there be no obstacle between me and you. And I pray for those whose hearts are cold or indifferent or far from being yours, that, Lord, today their hearts will be strangely warmed, that they will begin to see Jesus not as an object of religion, but as the saviour of their soul, who is altogether beautiful, overwhelmingly magnificent, glorious in ways they'd never seen or known before. So, Lord, I pray today that you would grip our hearts and minds. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. George Beverly Shea would sing that song in his church the next Sunday. As he sang it, there was a man there who heard him sing it, whose name was Billy Graham. And they formed a partnership that lasted the next, well, it's still lasting today. There is this idea that to become a Christian, you must clean your act up. In the sense of you, you, must, you, you must get your act together so that you can come to Christ. And we're going to see that completely blown out of the water. Calvin says the Bible is accommodated language. What did John Calvin mean? God cannot talk freely with us because we just can't understand. So how does God talk? You know, when I was in India, I was amazed that, that dogs speak and understand Hindi. But then you realise they, they hear the tones. They understand the tone of what's being said. And uh, you can yell, no, bad dog, in pretty much any language and the dog's going to get it. And the Bible is God's Infinite wisdom presented to us in accommodated language. The language that he knows if we will listen, we can hear. So as we read this, we're going to see in Colossians chapter 3 that Paul changes gears and he does this in all of his epistles. Generally, the first two-thirds of any epistle that Paul writes is Paul arguing from Scripture. It's Paul giving the, what we call the theology, which is a way of thinking about God and the way we respond to God. That's what the word theology is. It's a way of looking at the world. And Paul has done that in the first two chapters. And we've seen that Paul has given just some profound theology in the first two chapters of Colossians. It's an amazing epistle. And now he makes the, the standard gear change. And the standard gear change is to move from theology to practice. This is what you should believe. This is how you should act on what you believe. And he does it in all the epistles. The classic one is Romans. 
We're going to see in chapter 3 in particular the theme that runs through the epistle to the Colossians and that is this, us in him, in us. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And, and that sounds like, what? That sounds very flowery and eloquent, but we're going to see Paul use this expression that we are in Christ hidden. We're in Christ hidden. I remember hearing the story of a girl who had a terrible nightmare. And in the nightmare, she was standing in this queue and she soon realised in her nightmare that it was the judgment day. And as the queue was progressing toward the throne of God, she was, she was becoming increasingly aware of what was about to happen to her. Her whole life was about to be opened up and she was to give an account. And in the dream, she sensed that she was becoming more and more terrified. And as she approached the, the front of the queue and she stood before God in her absolute terror, this little girl realised that beside her was somebody with this great big gowny thing and so she just went under it and hid there. And then she heard the conversation. Where is she gone? It's okay, Father. I've got her. What a beautiful picture. She hid in the robes of Jesus. So that when God, the great judge, looked at her, he didn't see her. He saw Jesus. She woke from her dream and it became a sweet dream, not a nightmare. This, <clears throat> this section here, Colossians chapter 3, reminds me of something I've heard people say over the years. People who are heavenly minded are of no earthly good. Don't know if you ever heard that expression, but people who are heavenly minded are of no earthly good, and Paul the Apostle will have none of that. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who said, Unless you are heavenly minded and your mind is fixed on another world, you are of no use to this world. And Paul the Apostle is going to say, unless you are heavenly minded, you cannot as a Christian live appropriately in this world. We're reading from Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, where he says this, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. It's an amazing challenge from the, from the outset to think spiritually. Think heavenly thoughts. Think of thoughts that lift your thinking from off this life and into the next. There's this word that the old reformers used in the 16th century called providence. And providence, pro, v-day, pro, before, v-day means to see. It's where we get the word video from. It means to see before it happens. And we worship a God who exercises providence. That is, he sees things in advance. He knows what's going to happen. We worship a God who has the future under control. For the believer, that should cause our hearts to go, oh, Why? 
because God has everything under control. He has it all ordered. Even the bad stuff that happens to us. Remember Joseph, Genesis 50? The evil that you intended, God has worked for good. Even the, the stuff that just wasn't nice at the time, you can look back now in providence and see that God has used it to bring you to this point in your life. To be spiritual in our thinking is to have an understanding of God's providence, that he's, he's in control. He orders events. Tonight I'm going to share a little bit more about providence and particularly around Romans 8.28. But for right now, if we are to think appropriately in this life, in this world, we must be people who know who God is. And Paul has spent the first two chapters trying to show his readers who Christ really is. He's not, he's not the, the impotent, wussy, misunderstood person who tragically died. And what a waste. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was deliberate, intentional, strong and completely and, and utterly in control of every circumstance he walked into. Even when he was being slapped and beaten by soldiers, he was the one in control. And he was being beaten for our sake. This is the revelation of scripture. So we are to have our minds set on the one who has been raised up. The one who has been raised up. The Jesus who has conquered death, who has conquered this world, who has conquered sin. This is the Jesus we are to think about. Now, <clears throat> thinking. Someone has said this, when you get depressed, it's probably because you're listening to yourself too much. And it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, who said this. If you are down, it's time to stop listening to yourself and it's time to start talking to yourself. He says, people who talk to themselves more than they listen to themselves are people who are full of joy. Now, where does he get that from? What is it? The psalm? Is it Psalm 30-something where, where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? What's the psalmist doing? Talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Rejoice in God. So if you're having a bit of a downtime, it's not time to listen to yourself. It's time to talk to yourself. <laughs> so what you think determines how you live. And this is what Paul's going to say in verse 2. Let's have a look at this. Set your minds on things that are above, not, are, not things that are on earth. So what are the things that are on earth? What are the things that you could worry about? Oh, man, well, give, me a, give me a roll. Let's, let's, what, could, what could you worry about? Just about everything. Like, I could give you cause to worry and you could think, man, our pastor has a depraved mind. Like, you ever seen those movies where, you know, the guy, the, the, you know, the secret agent's going to his car and all of a sudden the music builds as he puts the key in the door? Dirt uh, oh, it's Jaws. You know this. You know. <laughs> and he's about, he opens the door and you go, oh, it didn't blow up. Then he puts his seatbelt on, then he puts the key in the ignition and they pause and they slow down. What's going to happen? The car's going to be blown to smithereens and I'm going, dude, can't you hear the music? 
Now, do you know that when you leave this building and go to your car, (laughs) there's so much we could worry about. And what does Paul say in one sweeping statement? Stop thinking about that stuff. Start thinking about stuff that from where you're at right now is a complete distraction. We all need holy distractions. I hope that church for you each week and the emails that I send out in the middle of the week and the things that we make available are all holy distractions from the world that wants to choke the life out of you. What you think determines how you live. What you put into your mind becomes a part of how you live. What are you thinking about? Don't you hate it, guys, when girls ask that question? Remember going out and your girlfriend would always say, what are you thinking? And it's then that you have to start thinking. And I'll give you a clue. Those boys who are about to go into that dating phase of their life, whenever your girlfriend will ask you this, she will, guaranteed, guaranteed. Will You'll come to me one day and go, you're right, she did. I go, I know, I know, they all do it. It's genetic. It's just, <laughs> this is what you were to say about you, my dear. I just can't stop thinking about you and how lovely you are and how beautiful you are. And how there's no other girl on the planet like you. For some reason, women just don't get that there can be times when guys just don't think. <laughs> oh, you do. Well, let's just close in prayer, shall we? It's like <laughs> Verse 3. As, as we look at, at, at this, we're going to see in a moment, Paul has what would ordinarily be considered some amazingly strict things to say to these believers. And these believers in in Colossians are obviously young Christians, they're obviously novice Christians. The fact that they've been so easily swayed by these false teachers who've come in and taught all this error, and many of them have adopted it, and Epaphras, the pastor, has obviously gone to see the Apostle Paul and said, how do we correct this? How do we change this? How do we... How do we fix this? And Paul, in his letter, has said, I'll show you how, Epaphras. Let's point them to Jesus. Let's give them the real Jesus. And in a moment, Paul's about to give, some, some, I think, some of the heaviest stuff in all of the Bible. And I have found over the years that people have said certain passages of the Bible are difficult. And this is, if you want to increase the level of difficult in your Bible reading, this is what you do. Harden your heart. Refuse to give in to God. See what's plainly obvious, but look for a subtle misinterpretation of that text to justify the way you're currently living. Then you'll make the Bible very difficult. So with that preface, we're reading verse 3, Colossians 3, 3. This is what he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now this is theology, but this is important theology. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Interesting. No, no thinking of a rapture in Paul's theology. None at all. For Paul, when Christ returns, that's it. No secret coming, no secret rapture, none of that. For Paul, it's Christ appearing, resurrection, judgment. 
Now, you may miss that, but this is the sentiment that Paul is talking about. And in judgment, there's going to come two things. Matthew 25, he'll separate the sheep from the goats. He'll separate those who have been obedient from those who haven't. He will take those who are his and belong to him, whose names are written in the book of life, and they will be his for eternity. He will then separate those who have refused to have their name written in the book of life, and he will deal with them. And that word deal with them is the word wrath. And we're going to see this in a moment. This one's saying, this passage that we're about to read, I consider to be one of the heaviest in all of Scripture. So this is what we need to understand. Paul introduces this section by saying, you've died. You're dead. Anyone ever seen the movie Big Fish? The premise of the movie Big Fish, which is a great movie. This guy lives in a small town and he's always bragging about stuff. And, it's, and his kids have grown up here and their dad talk about, you know, I've done this and I've done that and I've been there and I met this person and I did this. And, and the kids are going, oh, dad. And they've grown up, the little kids fascinated by it. But then they get to the point where it's like, these stories are just way too big. And he gets to his deathbed and now the grandkids are coming in and he keeps telling these stories. And they, ke- they describe their granddad, the dad, as a big fish in a little pond. That's the premise of the story. I won't give you the, the twist, although I'd love to right now because I'm really going to illustrate this really well. But what happened to him very early on was he went to a fortune teller. This is not good theology. But he went to a fortune teller who showed him how he would die. And and instead of walking out going, ah, he walked out going, that's cool. What he saw, we're not shown, but what he saw was that he died very peaceably of old age. So what he did throughout his life was live on the edge because he knew everything would be okay. Jesus is telling us, consider yourselves dead, dead to this way of living. Don't hanker, don't crave for the things that this world offers to satisfy the longing of your soul. Consider yourselves dead. And consider yourselves like that little girl on the day of judgment, hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ in God. So now we come down to verse 5. We know that if we're hidden with Christ in God and we're about to read this incredibly heavy stuff, I need you to know this. The reason God is going to give this is because he has a plan for your life for, and this is what we need to understand, for your good. Keeping the commands of God is actually going to benefit us. We are the ones who are going to benefit. A description I heard someone use in conversation was, you know, you Christians, you're all about keeping rules and stuff. And he said, well, gee, um, you call them rules. I call it the map of the minefield. These rules that you call them, yeah, okay, they tell me what to do and what not to do. But you know what they really do? They stop me stepping on the landmines of life. You, you're blowing yourself up every weekend. So why wouldn't you want to know where the things are in life that can choke you and really harm you and hurt you? Why wouldn't you want to know a God who's a loving Father, who wants to guide you, who wants you to be his child? Why wouldn't you want that? So God has a plan for your life, for your good. This is for your good. 
But this plan is also a plan that if you live according to this plan, it's for his glory. John Calvin said, when it comes to living in the will of God, the only thing God requires of us is that we obey his commands. Now, what does he mean by that? Sometimes we go, oh, I don't know if I should do this, don't know if I should do that. Listen, if you're not breaking a command either way, then think about it, get wisdom and make a decision. The only thing God reasonably requires of you is to obey his commands. That's the plan for your life to be good and for it to glorify God. So we read in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears christ has given you life what's the there's a big word for this it's the word regeneration i'm going to use it in a moment to regenerate means to bring back to life but right now i want you to see if we're hidden in christ we use a word in the english language called justification so when you come home and you've asked your teenage children to uh, clean the kitchen Get the rubbish out, get the oven turned on, you come home, the kitchen's a mess, nothing's clean, the oven's not turned on. You could rightfully say, justify yourself. And what are we asking them? Give us the reason. And that's what justify means, to give the reason, to justify. And the Bible says in Romans, and Paul is alluding to it here, that Jesus is our justification. So it's like that little girl standing before God, hidden in Christ. If God was to ask you or I, why should I let you into my eternity with me to have eternal bliss and ultimate satisfaction for eternity? What's our answer? Not because, well, I got smart. Not because I tried hard. Not because I'm not a bad person. Because none of that on that day is going to carry any weight. What's our justification for saying you should let us in? Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus appears, who is your life? Jesus is our... If you're born again, Jesus is your justification. This is really, really important to understand because sometimes we think we became a Christian because we did something. We cleaned up our act. We did something. And if you think like that, you're deluded. Your thinking is distorted. You are not thinking... Biblically. To think biblically is to think that Jesus is your life. It's not because of you, it's because of him. Your life is hidden in him. So now we read that there are certain things we have to die to. He's already said it in verse 3. For you have died. So there's a dying that's required. So when we understand that we die, we understand when it comes to verse 5, it's going to sound pretty negative. This, the remaining section here is going to sound pretty negative because it's... He's already said you've got to die. Now he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So here's Paul's eschatology, which means understanding of the very end. He's seeing a judgment coming. He's seeing that God is going to judge. And if you don't have your life in Christ, you'll experience the wrath of God. And I know that there are people who go, I cannot believe that a loving God would 
be in any way angry, then I would say you really don't understand love. Because one of the things that you will discover when you truly love someone, you will know times of anger. You will. Multiply that out infinitely to the infinite God of love. You'll understand this God is not a God to be trifled with. So when we talk about putting things to death, Paul's already talked about our life being in Christ. And here's an important point that I want us to understand. That life comes from God. That's the word regeneration. Regeneration is God's business. But here, what we're going to see here, Paul then says, but put these things to death. You know what that tells me? That tells me I've got a role here. I've got something to do here. I mean, if Paul isn't thinking that we actually make decisions every moment of the day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year to do or not do certain things, then this makes absolutely no sense at all. So here's what I need us to understand. Two premises. Number one, regeneration is God's business. Conversion is our business. God regenerates us, but we have to make decisions that turn our lives around based on the new life we've got. That's called conversion. So I want you to see that. So this is where we're going to use, find these expressions put to death. Now look at this in verse 5. Look at the things that we are to put to death. And I want you to think about where we started in this chapter. Paul is saying, I want you to think spiritually. I want you to think spiritually. And where does he go immediately? When he says, look, I've got some spiritual things to talk to you about. I've got some deep spiritual stuff to transact with you right now. So let's deal with it. You've got to understand that we are spiritual people because we've died to our old way of living. Christ has come into us. Now let me talk spiritual to you. And what are the, this entire verse, what's it talking about? Sex. Do you see that? Sexual immorality, which is improper sexual conduct, which is essentially sex without marriage or beyond marriage. Impurity. What is impurity? Well, it, it encompasses what you feed your mind sexually. Why as Christians do we have a problem with pornography? And, and why does the pornography industry think we're stupid when they say this is harmless? What, do I look stupid? What do you mean this is harmless? What do you mean this has no effect on the way people think? Why is the pornography industry the number one industry in the world today? I can give you stats on the amount of money the average American spends on pornography per capita, and it is more than their grocery bill. It is bizarre. The thing that is driving the internet, I'm told, is the pornography industry. Hear the Apostle Paul. Oh, by the way, I used to think that was just a bloke issue. And I've discovered the research says that there's an alarming number of women who are into pornography as well. Impurity. He's already, see, the context is, to, is spiritual thinking. So let's put this to death. Impurity. What else does he say? Passion. Now, who would have thought passion was wrong? Well, obviously he's not talking about passion for the right things. 
But he said in Romans chapter 1, he's used this same Greek word in Romans chapter 1 where he talks about impure passions where men burned in their lust for other men. And Paul says that is wrong passion. And I know that in years to come, the homosexual community is going to wear the church down, wear the church down, wear the church down. They're going to tell you this is outdated, this is outmoded, we need to rethink all this. This was written to a time when homosexuality meant pedophilia, not homosexuality. This was written at a time when, when Paul, you know, he was, he was a homophobe. That's why he said the things he said. So anything that Paul said, we just rip it out of the Bible because, well, we just discount him. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Because these people say, well, Jesus, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Really? In one sweeping statement, Jesus did. When he endorsed the Levitical law regarding sexual conduct in Leviticus 19, Jesus said, is it Matthew 15 verse 19, somewhere in there, where Jesus said, these things will defile a person and keep them out of the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality. What's he doing? He's giving the heading for that Leviticus section. And what's one of the first things it mentions? Homosexuality. And I know that, you know, that we're going to have friends who are homosexuals and they're going to look at us and they're going to go, do you think God will condemn me for my homosexuality? And can I give you a great response? The response is, God's not going to condemn anyone for their sexuality. God's going to condemn people for their rebellion. Now, because sometimes we think if we can just get these people, these homosexual people straight, then they'll be more right with God. Listen, you can be a philandering adulterer and find that you'll burn in hell for eternity. And you, you can't appeal on the day of judgment, but I wasn't homosexual. No, but you're still a philandering adulterer. And the whole point here is bearing the image of God. So... I told you it was going to get heavy. And that's what he's talking about here. This is wrong for the believer, he says. Passion, evil desire. Again, it's in the same context. Next one, covetousness. If you look at the Ten Commandments, and you'll see this is the Tenth Command, when the Ten Commandments give do not covet, what's the first thing it says? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. It's a sexual covetousness. So Paul is saying sex actually really does matter. Sex is actually spiritual. And if I could illustrate this, I would, if, I, if I'd had two glasses, I would have taken one full of black ink, one full of clear water. And I've said the Bible says when two people come together sexually, the Bible says they become one. And I would have poured the two, or I would have had a third glass. Or oh no, I would have poured, no, I would have poured, no, I'm just thinking out loud. I would have poured the black into that and I would have poured that into that because the Bible says you become one. And you would have seen what happens to the colour. And you would see that Sex, according to scripture, is intimately spiritual. Intimately spiritual. And Paul says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Is God a sexual prude? Gotta be joking. He invented it. He invented the triggers. God has designed sex for pleasure as well as procreation. We need to understand that this is. This is supposed to be pleasurable. You know, when a, when a guy looks at 
something that's sexually provocative. He is designed by God to get turned on and the pornography industry knows it and they abuse it. That women should be discreet, be pretty, please look pretty, but, but don't be provocative. We need to be really living the spirit of this out, that we're not being sexually provocative. We're not doing anything to defraud one another. So we're to put these things to death, the Bible says. So if you're into pornography and you've got your stash at home, I charge you, go home and burn it. Get rid of it. You've got DVDs that you say, well, they're just marital aids. Um, rubbish. Get rid of them. Do not be fans, you know, entering into fantasy with anyone else than your spouse. Get rid of it. Verse 7. You notice this verse? It's a redemptive verse. See what Paul's saying? In these things you, what? Once walked. What's he saying? That's not the way you live anymore. What's he really doing? In one sense, it appears that if he's telling them, put these things to death, there's obviously some people in the church at Colossae who are still doing these things. The archaeologists have found some of the most lewd, graphic uh, artwork of pornography around in the Roman times that would, that would curl the pornographer's hair of today. So this is not a recent phenomenon. And here we have Paul saying, but that's not the way you live now. That's how you once walked. You know, when I go into a newsagent, and you know, I've got a newsagent here that is also uh, the post office, so you go in to post a letter and you've got stuff, and you know, I'll give you a clue, guys, if it's in a clear bag with a black bit across the middle, probably you shouldn't even look at it going, wonder what's behind the black bit. Don't do it. Don't even buy, I don't even buy magazines from a newsagent. Apart from Women's Day, I mean, I've got to keep up, but you know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> In these you once walked when you were living in them. So, you know, you could imagine someone coming into this church at Colossae going, wait a minute, you Christians all claim to be Christians and forgiven by God, but I saw you having a prostitute down there the other way, and I saw you doing that, and I saw, what's you bunch of hypocrites? And here's the point that when you come to Christ, not everything drops off at once. And here Paul seems to say there is a turning that happens and we turn away from things and we live a new life. And no matter what you're into, no matter what you've done in the past, thank God it's just that, it's the past. Thank God we can live in Colossians 3.7 in the way you once walked. We don't walk in that anymore. Thank God. But perhaps someone could say, but you can't tell me what to do. I know how you used to live. And here's a great quote from Martin Luther. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. You see what he's saying? God can, God can still draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So you may not be living perfect, but you don't have to be perfect to know what's right and to help others to live what's right as well. Great thought. Okay. <clears throat> so let's read on. Verse 8. But now you have put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. It's not the place for Christians to be swearing. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the what? 
knowledge after the image of its creator. So this is where Paul is saying to these people who are promoting knowledge as the answer. He's saying, yes, there is knowledge, but it's right knowledge. It's knowledge from God's word. It's knowledge that comes from knowing God. That's the right knowledge. Verse 11. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, verse 10, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. These are the positive things. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Oh, God knows we need this in Launceston. People get offended so easily and they divide churches. And if they only realise that this verse says, hey, you get offended, forgive. What? Well, I'm not, I better read what he says about it. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Thank God, God has forgiven us. Amen? Amen. No, 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 no. Amen? Amen? That's better. Right, so here we go. And above all these things, put on love. So we need to understand that as we're looking at this, Paul assumes that grace, the grace of God, which he's opened in the opening few verses of chapter 1, that he's wished for them, prayed for them, will empower their obedience. This is a really important point. Grace empowers obedience. So we put these things on. But grace not only empowers obedience, grace empowers love. You don't feel very loving? Thank God you're not living this out in your own strength. Ask God to love through you. Grace empowers love. Grace empowers love. Verse 15. Oh, sorry, end of verse 14. Uh, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts isn't that interesting that little three letter word let let <laughs> let the peace of God rule in your hearts I want the peace of God to rule in my heart I'm sick of being stressed we want our hearts filled with peace and Paul says will you please let God do it let the peace of Christ let the peace of God rule in your heart and look here, <laughs> to which, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be, and be thankful. Verse 16. This is where we need to understand this, and I want to make a point about this as we look at this. And, and really, I want you to see the importance in Paul's mind of meeting together in the big group. We'll call that the temple worship, where we're meeting together, because this is what they did in Acts chapter 2. They met in the temple and then they met in homes. So here's the two aspects of being a church community. There's the big gathering and then there's the house gathering. It is my pastoral goal for this church that we will each have a house group, a house Bible study group to which we belong. Even if you can only get to it once or twice a year, at least know which house Bible study group you're not going to. And here's why. Look at this. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. The only way I can see that being fulfilled is if we meet together to sing hymns, songs, spiritual things and uh, uh, psalms and so on. But then there's this teaching and admonishing two beautiful words in Christianity, one another. One another. And that's where it happens in the small groups. That's where it happens in the house groups. 
Verse 17, and here's where we culminate. And in Paul's thinking, it always leads here. It always leads here in Paul's mind, and it's worship. Here it is. Our lives culminate in worship of God. And here's how he puts it. And you need to understand the expression, the name of the Lord is another way of saying to the glory of God. So this is what he says. And whatever you do in word or deed, do you notice that? Whatever you do. Think about whatever you do. Whatever you do. Whatever you do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a thankful people. Help us to be a people that do everything for your namesake, for your glory. Help us to live for you. Help us to serve you. Help us to put to death these things that should die and be done away with. And help us to be found hidden in you, living our lives for you and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is very specific about what constitutes sexual immorality. And we're directed to get rid of it from our lives. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Colossians Part 8, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.